Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and I've got to tell you, we are so happy to see you tonight. We have really wanted to be able to help you to understand what the program is all about. And what I know to be true is that it's so important for you to have some history about sex addiction and the addiction that occurs or the compulsion when you have experienced trauma reenactment as a child and now you're reenacting the trauma, yes, it is very important to understand that. Some people that have sex addiction have experienced trauma reenactment. Others have not. And truly, That's part of what you have to do is decide what is going on with you. You know, how does you get involved with sexual compulsivity and when did it occur? Now, what I know to be true is that it's for a lot of people They experienced abuse, they saw physical abuse, they saw emotional abuse, they experienced sexual abuse, they experienced sexual play. And that trauma and drama um, was so traumatic that they 
have repressed or suppressed their emotions, and later on, it came out. It came out in the form of sexual compulsivity. And if you've got that special part of your brain that lights up and craves more, you are at risk. You're vulnerable for sexual addiction. Others, it just had to do with the compulsivity of the Internet. You know, a lot of people with sex addiction are actually dealing with attention deficit disorder. Now, for, for the clinicians, we always say to ourselves, okay, did they have attention deficit disorder or did they involve themselves with sexual acting out on the Internet that required lots of screens and lots of flipping and moving around and after five, six, 10, 15 years of that, they had trained their brain to want more, to not be able to sit in mindfulness, to not be able to focus on one thing. And so did their acting out cause attention deficit disorder-like behavior? Or did they have attention deficit disorder-like behavior which contributed to their desire, uh, their propensity for pornography and for compulsivity that got worse and worse and worse. Now, tonight, I am so happy to be working with Judy Kelly. And Judy is an LCSW and a CSAT, and she'll she'll be explaining why sex addicts have difficulty working through their shame. You know, we know that sex addiction is all about shame. And Judy holds workshops that help addicts to develop the shame resiliency to experience vulnerability and to learn to become authentic, transparent, and honest with their feelings. So that's the great thing. Tonight you're going to be learning, how can I be more honest? And you know, for many of the men I work with, after we get down the recovery tools and we get them on a path that will help them, we also then work with them so that they're honest with themselves and they're honest with others. And truly, That's what sex addiction is all about. It's breaking that horrible sense of secrecy and dishonesty that accompanies any kind of addiction, but especially sexual addiction. And so I'm going to ask you, you know, if when's the last time you lied? If you're an addict, when's the last time you lied? And was it about sexual acting out, or was it about something as simple as whether you stopped off at CVS to pick up a pack of cigarettes? You know what I mean. Maybe you're not advertising the fact that you smoke, and so your wife says to you, did you you stop by anywhere before you came home? And you say no. 
Because what you believe to be true is that, you know, buying a pack of cigarettes is not that big of a deal. But what I know to be true is it's a huge deal because, A, it creates a lie that can contribute to bigger problems. And, B, and more importantly, for some addicts, holding that lie chisels away at their integrity which sets them up to act out. And Judy's going to be talking about, you know, what is shame and how does that get created? And more importantly, um, you know, how do you develop shame resiliency? Because shame resiliency and sex addiction and partner recovery is essential. And she actually works with people individually, but she also does workshops that are instrumental in kind of catapulting the progress of a sex addict. So that's what we're excited to talk with Judy about. And I am just going to check in with Judy Kelly, who is running these workshops. Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I love this topic. And when I saw that you were doing workshops, I said, I've got to have Judy on the show to talk about the workshops themselves, as well as what her belief is about shame and how do you get to that momentum experience of resiliency. I mean, how do you... Learn how to be resilient so that you don't contribute towards more medicating behaviors. So can can you talk with us first about the need for emotional self-regulation and sex addiction and partner recovery? Because I know you feel that's <clears throat> instrumental to working through shame. Right, right. And I also, Carol, want to just take a quick minute to thank you so much for doing this specialized service to the community, the recovery community. You really, you can really see your heart in this. So I really, I so appreciate that. Well, thank you, Judy. Yeah, you're right. And just like you, we really believe in getting the word out there because when people know better, they do better. So thank you for thanking me. So tell us a little bit about self-regulation and shame. Yeah. So um, that's one of my favorite quotes, by the way, Maya Angelou. I love that. Yeah, so absolutely. Well, as you know, as a a fellow certified sex addiction therapist, Carol, um, people call us more often than not in that initial crisis. Either the person is struggling with the sex addiction, um, got discovered by his wife or partner or perhaps lost his job or got arrested, Um, something threw him into a crisis or we receive an urgent call from the wife or a partner saying that he or she discovered evidence of acting out behaviors. And both parties are at a very high level of distress. So whether I'm the addict or the betrayed partner, I absolutely believe that both are really struggling with some pretty active PTSD um, when one or the other show up at my office door. So, excuse me, in addition to providing a 
a thorough clinical assessment for sex addiction, as mm-hmm. we need to do, as you know, and partner betrayal trauma, as well as formulating, you know, an immediate treatment plan of action and treatment recommendations. I really find that clients, whether <clears throat> whether they are the addict or the partner, are really going to need some immediate emotional relief and support. And I believe helping clients begin the work of building some some external and internal emotional containers from the get-go is really very paramount for both addicts and partners to to really begin to start to, you know, feel safe within themselves and eventually in emotionally engaging with their partner in safe and respectful ways. You know, the disease of sexual addiction and its impact on themselves and on their partners are typically at their worst during the crisis stage of discovery, as you know, or at the, the point of, you know, they're at the point of critical powerlessness and desperation of the addict um, and also the partner. But the addict really, he feels, hopefully, that he can no longer continue living the life in this disorganized, self-defeating, chaotic, painful fashion. So many of these traumatic memories and emotional triggers and intense feelings can continue for some time for the partner, for the addict, a lot for the partner, but also can become less intense as treatment and therapy progresses. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So tell me, when do you first start teaching clients about emotional self-regulation? Well, and and there are a lot of benefits to that. There's there's a great benefit benefit for both the addict and the partner to be taught and practice these emotionally self-regulating techniques, I think, from the very beginning, as soon as possible. I mean, people are really struggling, and so we want to help them be able to survive, you know, the hit of of the sex addiction and the, the discovery. Um, so right at the very beginning, I really, really like to work with folks. And so one of the benefits is that it can help if it's a partner and it's discovery, it can really help a partner to manage their own emotions because they're in, they're in shock and they're feeling angry and they're feeling scared. They're feeling that whole flooding of emotions. And if they're right. the addict, they feel shame and they, they hate being discovered. They, this one thing that they've been not wanting to have occur in their life. And at the same time, Part of that reason is because they don't want to hurt anybody, and their addiction hurts others. So tell right. me how you see that self-regulation um, benefits both an addict or a partner after discovery. Well, I think, you know, there's great benefit. And one of the, one of the techniques that I use in in teaching clients about emotional resourcing and self-regulation, um, and I can talk about the benefits here as well. I'm I'm also trained as a somatic therapist, so I do some. I think it's really important to do some psychoeducation about the brain um, and the body and feelings and how they all work together in response to trauma. And as we know, sexual addiction and you know, the aftermath of the discovery and all that creates a huge trauma, both for the addict and, you know, primarily for the partner, but I think the addict is in a traumatized state too. So I explained to clients that when we are treating trauma, we need to we need to kind of wake up the thinking and the noticing brain 
Um, I remember mm-hmm. when I first trained with Patrick Carnes, one of the things he said that really stuck with me that was um, when we treat sex addicts, and I, I think this is true for partners as well, we need to grab onto their frontal lobes and don't let go. And I think the reason being is that all of our brains can get hijacked and our frontal lobes go offline in response to trauma or being intensely emotionally triggered. For partners especially, this can happen, as you know, numerous times a day or even numerous times an hour in the beginning. So as a student of sensory motor somatic psychotherapy, what I, what I really like to teach to almost every client I have, whether it, I'm working with folks around sexual addiction or partners of trauma betrayal, um, it's called what's called the window of tolerance, which comes from Pat Ogden and Janina Fisher's work in somatic psychotherapy. So I ask clients to imagine that they have this sort of imaginary feeling window inside themselves, and it looks like a real window, but we're we're going to imagine sort of dividing this window into three separate sections. So imagine a line running horizontally at the top of the window. So there's a space at the top. We call this area hyperarousal. And then there's the middle of the window we call the optimal arousal zone or the optimal feeling zone. And the third space in line is toward the bottom of the window, and we call this hypoarousal. So what happens is after experiencing trauma, our nervous system remains prepared for danger, and we are in a heightened emotional response pattern. So in other words, when we experience an intense emotional reaction that is really hard to regulate, we often, all of us, will often go outside the center or middle part of the window and move into either hyperarousal, we'll flip out the top of the window, or drop down to hypoarousal will drop out the bottom of the feeling window. So I think it's really important to teach people how to stay in the middle window in the optimal arousal zone. And that, you know, that task can be really very challenging and sometimes seem even impossible in the early stages of recovery and healing. So <clears throat> I think what's, what's so important at this stage is to really teach clients how to emotionally resource their way back into the window of tolerance, back into the middle window once they are flooded through landing in hyperarousal or dissociating in the numbing trance of hypoarousal, which I'll describe in a minute. So, so there's three parts. Um, we have chronic hyperarousal at the top. We have the optimal arousal zone or window of tolerance, same thing, in the middle and then chronic hypoarousal at the bottom of the window. <clears throat> and so the middle section, known as the optimal arousal zone, truly is optimal. I think that's a good word for it because it's what I call our safe contained space inside. And that middle of the window is where feelings and reactions are tolerable. We can think and feel simultaneously, and our reactions and our behaviors are contained. And our, our thinking and our feelings and our behaviors are all congruent. They all kind of match up in some fashion. <clears throat> so this is where we feel, I mean, we can have conflicting feelings and conflicting thoughts, but we know that we're thinking and feeling them. So we're noticing that. So this is where we feel more centered and balanced and in control of ourselves. And that doesn't mean that we still can't feel 
you know, a real wide range of powerful emotions. I mean, in the feeling, in the optimal feeling window, we can be really pissed off. We can feel intense anger or intense pain and shame and fear, loneliness, abandonment, grief, whatever it is. But our thoughts and our feelings and behaviors are all connected. You know, it's like the three-legged stool, right? So, right. In a, yeah. So in other words, there's an awareness and there's a noticing. Our thinking brain is awake. Our frontal lobes are online, and we know that we are angry. We know we're, we know we're so angry we want to punch a wall, but we don't because we can think through it. That's why I always tell people you want to think through the trigger. Think through the trigger. And a lot of therapists will say, you know, it's all about feelings and you have to feel. But when you're triggered, I say recognize what you're feeling. Yeah, but think. Think through the trigger. And sometimes that's where tapping your forehead and doing, you know, EFT and some of these other things can be really helpful. So let me explain a little bit for folks signs of um, chronic hyperarousal and the difference between hyper and hypoarousal, and then I'll do some talking about shame and shame resilience. But <clears throat> the signs of the chronic hyperarousal at the top of the window, so that mm-hmm. might include um, emotional overwhelm, panic, impulsivity. Um, we can be really defensive, angry, hypervigilant. We can feel unsafe. We can be really reactive, um, have racing thoughts. Um, that's just a few of them. So, and in hypoarousal, what that can look like is feeling uh, numb, feeling dead, passive, dissociating, kind of in a trance-like space. No energy. We can't think. We're disconnected. <clears throat> shut down emotionally. Kind of collapsed. Might include chronic depression, sort of that passivity, that inability to say no. And I always tell addicts and partners that I treat that really nothing good ever happens when we are in hyper or hypoarousal. Um, I really firmly believe that sex addicts only act out often. I should say often, but I, I, I don't know. I think they almost only act out when they are either in hyper or hypoarousal because that's when their brains are hijacked and they're offline. They can act out in yeah, hyperarousal. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, doesn't it? Sounds, it sounds like part of the issue of being a sex addict or part of the issue of being loving a sex addict is not just what's happening in their life, but it's this brain chemistry that's going on that's also contributing towards their reactions or their avoidance of the issue. I mean, that's why we look at sex addiction as a brain disorder. And for partners, that's why we know they're experiencing post-traumatic stress and that trauma takes their brain offline. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think they can, you know, I think addicts act out in hyperarousal because there's too much emotional overwhelm for them to self-regulate, so they feel, because they haven't been taught how. Or the opposite extreme, they can act out in hypoarousal because there's not enough emotional stimulation. So they're desperately looking for ways to feel better. So I, I, that just makes sense to me. 
Um, so I kind of think about it that way and explain it that way. And that way, addicts and partners can really see the value of practicing staying in the window. Um, because addicts, when they're not connected to their frontal lobes, when they're either in hyper or hypo arousal, they are literally out of their mind, <laughs> right? And are operating with extreme impaired judgment. You know, that's why I love that phrase in addiction recovery, first thought wrong, because it often is. Yeah, so so to help clients emotionally self-regulate, I give them these tracking sheets, Carol, to help them identify their physiological symptoms. So, for instance, in hyperarousal, that can often include increased heart rate. I ask them to notice their rapid or shallow breathing, if they hold their breath, if there's a temperature change, sweating, tightening of the chest. You know, I kind of liken hyperarousal to that feeling like a hamster on a hamster wheel where there's lots of circular activity but no actual forward movement. That kind of makes sense to me. So this is often called the fight response. So when we think of the responses to strong emotional triggers of, of trauma responses, you know, as you know, we think of fight, flight, and freeze, right? And I, I think the fight and the freeze, the freeze is the immobility, the wanting to move but can't. Um, and the fight and freeze response often happen in a hyperarousal state, and the flight response happens in the hypoarousal state. That's kind of how I think of it. And you can, I think you can have hyper and hypo responses to the same trigger. We can flip-flop back and forth. Um, from these two places before landing in the window. So from here, once folks understand their own window of tolerance, they can identify, you know, think of certain circumstances and times. They can imagine, you know, what were or what typically are their physiological responses when they're triggered. Then they can recognize, oh, crap, I'm... (laughs) I'm in hyper or hypo arousal, and I really need to work my way back into the feeling window. That optimal arousal zone feels a lot safer. So I teach them lots of tools and skills to get back into the window, such as different types of breath work. One of my favorite ones is Brene Brown uses this in her Rising Strong work around box breathing. You probably know about that. It's like you breathe in, everything's to the count of four. So you imagine a box. I guess I'm into rectangles, right? Boxes, windows, right? So, yeah, so you, you imagine this box. So you breathe in through your, everything's to the count of four. So you breathe in through your nose to the count of four. You hold at the top of the breath to the count of four. You release to the count of four. And then you stay empty to the count of four. And I what a nice metaphor. Empty. Isn't that nice? I like that. Yeah, box mm-hmm. breathing. Yeah. Yeah. So she you know, I think that's a great thing. I used to use nine breaths and other types of, you know, breathing regulation techniques, but I love that one. I think it really works and it helps people reconnect to their, you know, their parasympathetic nervous system. So so using things like breath work, thinking cues, body positions, I teach them how to hold their body in a certain way, how to sit, how to stand in a certain way, and even how to lie down in certain positions, all which they can practice doing on their own to tame their trauma triggers. 
And I think it's important to note that here's the thing, that if clients have had big T traumas or a succession of little T traumas when they were growing up, they are going to have a smaller window of tolerance to begin with. So in other words, if, if we're working with clients that grew up and they experienced physical, sexual, or severe emotional abuse or emotional neglect, and this goes for partners too, or if they were raised in families that were rigid, controlling, or the opposite extreme, too permissive, or even by parents where they felt very loved, but perhaps the parents were too busy or unconscious themselves when they were growing up, that small window can get created. And I think this is why addicts can numb out, engage in intensive you know, pleasure-seeking behaviors, and get hooked on the avoidance of feelings um, ending up living a delayed life, so to speak. So I know that um, in hypoarousal, I think numbing comes from shame, anxiety, and disconnection. So here's the good news. We, and I think this is really good news. We are not stuck with a small emotional feeling window. We're not stuck with that. It is, and this is where I think daring greatly comes in. It is such an important part of recovery to allow feelings to come forward and to contain them and tolerate them and to know we're not going to die from feeling our feelings. And that's how we, with consciousness and awareness, that's how we expand and enlarge our window inside. We can learn to stay in our brains, in our bodies, and not jump out of them. We can tolerate feelings so that, you know, feelings that we once thought were intolerable, we can find and discover they really are tolerable um, and we can develop this solid safe emotional internal container inside ourselves and the more we can learn how to trust ourselves and our experiences and communicate those feelings to others the the, the more we're going to heal and the more we can we can grow new neural pathways in our brain and learn new ways of being in the world you know and kind of get back to being who we truly were meant to be in the first place. So I love giving clients different opportunities to do this. And one of the opportunities that I think can be incredibly helpful for addicts and partners and just the general community is through the Daring Greatly workshops. Well, no kidding. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that all of my sex addicts, resonate with Brene Brown. I mean, she really works hard on helping men and women to be vulnerable. And of course, that requires openness, honesty, transparency, and that safety feature. And so tell me a little bit about those workshops. Okay. So, So once I've helped clients through the crisis stage and beginning healing of the sexual addiction and betrayal trauma, and you know all that goes into that. In the you know first few months of treatment, we're helping people with a formal therapeutic disclosure and conferences and victim impact letters and, you know, it's all that goes into that so that people can experience some emotional relief and are beginning to come out of the crisis stage of treatment. I just think these workshops are incredibly helpful to help people expand that window of tolerance. It gives them live experiences to be able to do that and to learn about shame resilience in the here and now and in the present. You know, we 
CSEPs know that there's a lot of family of origin work to do, a lot of deeper trauma work to do with folks. But in addition to that, clients really need some nuts and bolts information on shame and shame resilience and vulnerability practices and empathy and self-compassion, transparency, all those things you were talking about, all those practices for the here and now. And that's where Daring Greatly comes in. They need opportunities to practice. And I think everything in life is a practice. Um, I absolutely believe that. Well, yeah, and you know what I say, because I run groups and do workshops, and I say, whatever you learn in these kind of situations, what you learn inside a group or a workshop, you practice out there. And it's the same thing with if you're having any kind of learning skills or even difficulty out there, you'll bring them into the group and we're going to see them. So this is a great way to make that happen. And so how long are your, I mean, how long would somebody be going to a Daring Greatly workshop? Would that be a two-day, three-day, four-day workshop? Yeah, it's, um, I do Daring Greatly workshops. I'm having one coming up in October, and it's, um, what we do is we start Friday night. It runs, um, I think, the 12th, let's see, October 12th to the 14th. Um, the next one I'm doing, and it starts Friday night from 6 to 9 p.m., and then all day Saturday, 8 to 5, and all day Sunday, 8 to 3. Um, and because it's everybody gets a workbook, everybody gets a manual, um, we really start working with all these things, all, all these different practices, um, practicing empathy, practicing self-compassion and shame resilience practicing humility and honesty and vulnerability and courage, you know. And here's the thing, Carol, it's it's not that some people have these things and some people don't. I think it's more that some people practice these things and some people don't. So the more we practice with conscious awareness, the more we're able to lay down tracks and develop those new neural pathways I was talking about. And practicing, I practice every day. <laughs> Something I practice every day. So... Yeah, so the Daring Greatly workshops are really helpful for learning and practicing those soft skills, broadening their window of tolerance. Um, And as I mentioned, it's based on the work of Dr. Brene Brown. Um, And, uh, you know, we work with vulnerability a lot. We think of vulnerability and, you know, speaking up will keep us safe if we avoid it, but in actuality it keeps us from being seen. So... You know, some folks operate in life with really high intensity and low intimacy. And so the Daring Greatly workshops really helps build some real emotional intimacy and transparency through the practice of vulnerability and honesty. Um, And that, you know, I mean, those are all things we need to practice. Um, So we do that in the workshop, both individually and as a group. We explore the myths of vulnerability, shame, shame resilience. Um, a lot of these experiences get lost with sexual addiction and the trauma that ensues. Well, I bet. So now are you saying that your Daring Greatly workshops, and again, one is coming up on October 12th through the 14th, just about a month and a half away, are you saying that they're specifically for addicts or can anybody attend these workshops, like partners or, you know, adult family members? Right, absolutely. It's, it's for adult men and women. So I've got 
some pretty um, I've done some many workshops actually with the addict and the partner, and what is really beneficial about that is they are able to come in, work together, and have a similar um, language and a similar way of operating. They can say, "Uh uh-oh, I think I'm in shame, um, or I think I'm operating in a shame shield, and I don't want to do that. So, you know, shame... uh, let me say a little bit. Can I say a little bit about shame real quick? Yes, and, and I'd like to hear more about the shame shield, too. Yeah, okay. So Brene Brown um, identifies, she has a great definition for shame. She she talks about it as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And um, something we've experienced, you know, it's something we've experienced or maybe it's something we've done or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection, we believe. And shame is not helpful or productive, nor is it a motivator for change. So whereas guilt, you know, knowing that we have gone against our own rules, structure, or values and have remorse about that, as in, you know, sexually acting out, that is more of a motivator for change. Um and in very greatly, I really try to help people understand and normalize shame. Like Brene says, we all have it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And the less we talk about it, the more we have it. And secrecy, silence, and judgment all fuel shame. And as you know, shame is the biggest, deepest driving emotion that underlies all addiction, especially sex addiction. So... You know, we work in the workshop with first identifying our shame in order to practice shame resilience. So some people can't see or even identify their shame, perhaps because their defenses, some people come in with really strong defenses of arrogance or entitlement that sits on top of their shame, or perhaps just due to numbing their feelings or not noticing feelings or not even knowing how to identify them. So we just start wherever people are at and um, helping folks in a gentle and safe way to really get in touch with their shame and bring it out into the light, Um, knowing that they can really like and love who they are, warts and all. So once we've helped them identify shame, the goal isn't to dive headfirst into it, right? I've done that before. It's really painful. I call it diving headfirst into my shame shit storm. (laughs) And then after that happens, I'm trying (laughs) desperately to claw my way out. Um, So now with lots of practice, I can stand outside the edge of my shame and I can see it swirling around and I can make a decision, nope, I'm not going to go in there, I'm not going to be swallowed up by it, but I can stand at the edges and look at it without taking that deep dive into it and I can practice shame resilience. So you want to hear a little bit about shame resilience. Should I jump into that? Would you please? That would be great. Okay. Yeah, so... So Brene talks about um, there's four elements that we work with and practice in Daring Greatly that helps build these new healthy neural pathways that I was talking about earlier. So one is the practice of shame resilience. So the four elements, one is learning to recognize our shame. So that is what is our, going back to the body, what is our physiological response in our body? How can we understand our shame triggers? And that might also include, you know, our shame shields. Um, Practicing critical awareness, which is understanding why it exists, how it works, and how it's impacting us and others. 
Uh, the third is reaching out and telling our story, and this is with people who have earned the right to hear it. This is one of the things that happens in 12-step groups, right? Doing this in whatever way we choose to can really help increase our shame resilience and create some change. Um, and we need to speak our shame. We need to come out of the secrecy and silence and into the light. And we get to practice not only building resilience, but also communicating our shame to safe people who then have an opportunity to practice that compassion, courage, and listening and supporting us. So shame shields are, are interesting because Brene Brown identifies like in her research, when we go into shame, we have to, we can have these common reactions. And again, if you think of shame as being the underlying, one of the biggest underlying feelings and beliefs in sex addiction of I am bad, I am unworthy, we need to, we need to gut out shame. We need to, we need to bring it out into the light. And when we're not conscious or aware that shame's going on, we can develop these shame shields. And um, I would say we either talk about it or we either talk it out or act it out. So the ways that we can sort of act out shame through shame shields is we can all at times, and we can, we can all at times use any of these, but um, most of us have our go-to favorite shame shield when we use, that we use when we're in shame. So what, the first one she talks about is moving against shame shield and we use this as a way to try to gain control or to have power over other people by being aggressive acting aggressively this is what happens i think when addicts are gaslighting others they really use that moving their shame is coming up they're not aware of it they're not conscious of it and they do this moving against shame shield and do the the gaslighting of the partner you're crazy you don't know what you're talking about why are you checking my phone that's about you, you need to get help, you know, making the other person feel crazy. That's the moving against shame shield. And then the moving away shame shield is is a way to withdraw, to hide, to keep secrets, staying silent, isolating. Um, and sexual acting out can happen in any of these, using any of these shame shields, but I think the moving away shame shield is a pretty common one. And then the third one she talks about is moving towards shame shield. So we use this shield as a way to seek approval, um, to fit in, when we people please, when we overly accommodate, when we use, I love this term, impression management. We're trying to, you know, manage people's perceptions of us. So those are all ways that we seek to protect ourselves. But, again, it doesn't really protect ourselves. It just keeps us from really being seen and robs us of our sense of connection and belonging. That's a really long answer to your really short question. <laughs> no, but no, that makes a lot of sense. And so I'm sure this is resonating with a lot of our listeners because I always say, I used to say it's the addict that carries the shame of what he or she has done, but it's the partner that carries the pain, which is the trauma of being gaslit or um, discovering the dual personality that they didn't even know they were living with. And now what I know is that there is a new shame for partners, and it's that shame of why am I staying? What am I teaching my kids? What will my neighbors right. think? And 
You know, I'm sure you and I, Judy, both really believe in if we can repair the relationship and keep couples together, um, Mm -hmm. that's typically our first goal. Now, anytime we're with a partner that doesn't want to be together, we honor that too. But most of the couples I work with, they do want to stay together. They're just not sure how to repair this horrible, horrible experience that they've had right so right and I and I agree and I work from that framework too Carol I and I and I tell people my bias from the get-go it's like I will tell you I love for people to stay together yes this is traumatic yes this is horrible yes this is the worst thing you've ever experienced in your life my bias is that even with all that miracles happen every day and the way you look and feel now about yourselves and each other can be vastly different in the way you look and feel about yourselves and each other down the road, and I promise you that. I mean, and I, and I can say that. Not that, you know, if people absolutely do the work, I can't promise anybody outcomes, of course, but I can promise that there's a miracle out there waiting for a lot of folks if if that's what they choose and if they choose that, no, I've experienced enough and I don't want to do this and I've tried for a year and he's not changing or it's not fast enough or whatever, you know, then we, then we change the plan. But I really, I love to see couples stay together, but I'm also very honoring if they choose not to. I'm absolutely honoring that as well. Well, and so, Tell me, how did you get involved with Brene Brown's Daring, um, The Daring Way? How did you make the decision that you were going to use this format to help heal people? That's a great question. Um, you know, I I did not. I I have been a CSAT for a number of years, and I got introduced actually by a fellow CSAT. Um, shout out to Leslie Hawes, who runs the Lifestar Sexual Addiction Treatment Program in Sacramento here. And she's like, Judy, you would love Brene Brown. You need to go check her out. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. You know, I have other things on my plate. (laughs) And then eventually it's like, okay, I need to check her out. And again, this was a number of years ago. And I started with The Gifts of Imperfection. She's written Actually, I thought it was me, but it wasn't. That's her first book. Her second is The Gifts of Imperfection. Third is Daring Greatly. Um, Fourth is Rising Strong. And then she has her new one, which escapes me. I'm sorry about Daring in the Wilderness or something. (laughs) Terrible. I can't remember the name, but um, I'm halfway through it. But anyway, as I was scoping her workout, it just so heavily resonated with me because I love – we all have shame, and, I, and I'm trained in also Pia Melody's, you know, shame reduction work, and it just shouted at me, and my good friend and colleague Leslie knew that it would, of course, so I said, okay, I need to mm-hmm. go get trained, and I was lucky enough to train with Brene Brown and her, um, and her staff, executive staff, and then I find out that one person on her executive staff is a CSAT, um, his name is Doug Weiss, and so I I went over and talked to him, and I said, I'm thinking this is going to be really good with the sex addicts and partners we treat. And he said, oh, Judy, you have no idea. So I found my way into his small group when I did the training with Brene Brown and, and her staff, 
and it just spoke to me. I said, oh, my gosh, I need to start doing these workshops, not just for the community and the public, but for addicts and partners. It is just such an opportunity. It's just another opportunity for healing and practice and transformation. And women, partners love it because they say, I have been screaming for this for my husband for so long. I tell him he's not vulnerable. I tell him he doesn't take any emotional risks. I've been telling him all this stuff, and now here it is right here right now, and he has an opportunity to learn it, to see it, to hear it, to face it, to practice it. And I I will say, Carol, I also keep my workshops pretty small. I don't do them with more than six to eight people because I really like the intimacy and the ability for people to have this live transformative experience. Um, and have lots of time to be able to do that. And I will tell you, people people were really scared in the beginning, and it's like, I don't know why I'm here. Why did I come? And then by the time they leave at the end of Sunday, they're crying and hugging each other saying, I don't want to leave. This is my new tribe. <laughs> so it's pretty Aww. valuable. And that's what, that's what shame resilience is all about. It's being feeling safe to be vulnerable and to share your honest self and your honest feelings of inadequacy so that you can work through them. So I, I just want to tell my listeners, for more information, Judy can be contacted at area code 916-783-3420, or you can email her at Judy Kelly, and that's K-E-L-L-Y, L-C-S-W at gmail.com, or you can always visit her website, www. JudithCKelly.com. So, Judy, as we wrap up the show, I'm curious, is there any last-minute information you want to share with our listeners that you think would be helpful and encouraging in working through their shame? Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I happen to think that, you know, allowing ourselves to, Stop hiding from our shame because we all have it and just really normalize it and bringing it out into the light. I'll I'll end with this, one of my favorite quotes of Brene Brown. It's, let's see, it's, I'm imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I'm also brave and worthy of love and belonging. So it's about how do you want to show up and be seen in your life? You know, we are not stuck with the mistakes that we've made. You know, we need to own it. We need to be accountable. We need to be remorseful. We need to be empathic. We need to develop self-compassion. And this, truly, these workshops are an opportunity. I think I think they're great for everybody. I've taken it myself because I would never ask anybody to do anything I haven't already done myself. And I will tell you when I, you know, when you when you get certified in in the Daring Greatly and the Rising Strong workshops, you know, you need to do, go through the workshop yourself as a client. And it blew my socks off. I'm like, I need to do this because I'm a better person having done it. If that makes sense. And that's what I want for my clients. That's what I want for my community. Oh, absolutely, and that is very genuine and authentic. So, Judy Kelly, thank you so much for sharing shame and resiliency. And I would encourage anybody who wants to work through this process 
to catapult your progress by attending her workshop. Again, it's located out in Roseville, California, um, mm-hmm. and you can contact Judy again by going to her website, www.judithckelly.com. Again, you can call her at 916-783-3420. So, Judy, keep me posted on how this is going and um, what other projects you got going because anytime you're doing shame resilience, uh, you're making a real difference in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I'm going to have to get you on my partner's radio show because this is their thing. They want to know how to develop more um, intimacy with, uh, obviously, the addict. And, you know, when they've been hurt so badly, it's hard for them to trust vulnerability. So what ends up happening is they had a situation where they weren't experiencing the vulnerability anyway, and now it's made worse by discovery. So... Oh, remind yeah. me to give you a call so we can let them know what you're doing too. Right, because vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Right, I that's think, not safe, know. is it? Right, right. Yeah, I would love to do that, Carol. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, and have a great night, and good luck with the workshops, and um, keep me posted. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye bye. All right. You too. So, again, that was Judy Kelly, and she has made it her mission to help addicts work with the number one issue they face in their own life, and that's shame and honesty. And, of course, being honest means that you you need to become vulnerable. And if you can't become vulnerable, then Judy or other CSATs need to help you to get past the defense mechanisms that are protecting you, but they're also keeping you from connecting. And connection is the antidote for sex addiction. You're talking to Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach. This is Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And um, as I say at the end of every show, there'll only be one of you at all times. Seriously, have the courage to be yourself. And we will see you next week.